Empathy is knowing our own dark Words have power. Like Without they that have connection, you don't have anything. Any. What's the opposite of addiction? It's freedom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another special episode of Finding Peaks. This is a special episode because we got a special guest with us today, and I'm excited uh, to be a part of this group dynamic uh, today. And uh, we're going to also have an additional episode uh, coming soon as well, too, or thereafter, however it works out in the time frame of things. But uh, uh, again, welcome. My name is Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. You all know me, your favorite host, trying to disrupt <laughs> an industry, provide quality of care, vision, insights for family systems. Uh, seeking treatment so that we can empower you all to make best possible decisions for your loved one, for yourself, and so forth. Joined today, as always, by the great Clinton Nicholson, Chief wow. Operating Officer, great. LPC, LAC, yeah. all things clinical, <laughs> to join us today. The heavy-hitting Dr. Ryan, MD, board-certified addictionologist with us today uh, at Peaks Recovery Centers. And Chief then Nicholson, our... Sir. What's that? Chief Medical Officer. I am so sorry. Yeah. Chief Medical Chief, no. Officer. <laughs> wow. That wouldn't make any sense. We'll rewind the tape. We'll fix it. <laughs> uh, special guest today, Dr. Stephen Alardi, yeah. clinical psychologist, researcher, professor, University of Kansas, and author of The Depression Cure, the book. And joining us here today to talk about depression, major depressive disorders, all of its variations, some anxiety. Maybe we'll tackle some SUD along the way. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I, I'm in such a gust company, I didn't realize the great, yeah, Clint, the great, yeah. the chief medical officer, <laughs> yeah. favorite podcast host, or whatever. I, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. I, this is like some pretty, pretty high cotton. That this I, is yeah, pretty so impressive. I, <laughs> I, so I'm honored to be yeah. part yeah. of it. Trying to give you some highlights, too, because you, you run your own podcast as well, too. I, you know, that's a new thing. Okay. It's, it's a, I, I dabble. I don't know. Maybe some folks out there can identify with this. I get bored really easily. So, like, you know, I've done NBA consulting. I've uh, written blogs for ESPN. I've, I've done a podcast now, YouTube channel. Um, I, you know, it, it, this is new terrain for me, though. So okay. awesome. being on camera, it's like, ah, not nervous at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now you know you can come on and say you are the greatest host and mean it when you say it and just really give yourself I, all the credit. I'm taking notes. They're the <laughs> mental notes right now, but yeah, absolutely. absolutely the greatest Absolutely. Host. The viewers That's at home are like, yeah, I think he is the best host. <laughs> That's going to uh, be in my bag. So, yeah, thank you for being here. Excited about this group and this bunch that we have uh, to really talk about. Uh, major depressive disorder, um, the symptomology of it, and so forth, and the potential for the cure for it, and, you know, the remission of symptoms, and so forth. And uh, as the viewers know, we've done some episodes with, you know, for example, uh, Dr. Ashley Johnson, uh, DO psychiatrist uh, with uh, uh, Colorado Recovery Services uh, here in town, doing uh, TMS services and a lot of great psychiatric work. And what the reason for highlighting that is because in those episodes, we talked about medication, um, the benefits of it, also its limitations, and the excitement around new opportunities like TMS. And sitting here with uh, you know, Dr. Olardi and certainly uh, Dr. Ryan Johnson here, we want to, uh, I think, reintroduce that as a topic and highlight it through a different lens um, and have a really good conversation about it, the pros of it, the cons of it uh, in that regard. And, and, a, and a little bit more of a backdrop, and we were talking about this earlier as well, too, you know, when you go to each and every single addiction treatment center's website, it says, we treat dual diagnosis. We can treat this thing called major depressive disorder. Uh, and generally out of that, I think it's something like, here's depression, and six months ago, you know, the pot smoking was taking place or the drug use and so forth. And somehow our industry keeps trying to make it about this thing over here. And I think what that's led to from an industry standard is... Uh, limitations about how we treat major, depress uh, major depression. So certainly here at Peaks, we're trying to, you know, work alongside you know individuals like you to really advance new insights, education, and uh, ultimately see as an outcome a reduction in symptoms around major depressive disorder and do more than just med management. Certainly, meds are important, but you have a great deal of analogies and insights into this. So I'm just going to let you fire away, and then we're just going to wrap around and talk about it with you. OK, well, thanks. Yeah, so the first thing I want to say is somebody earlier this morning, when I was getting to know the staff at Peaks, mentioned you know, the common thread that runs through everything that takes place at Peaks is you're dealing, first and foremost, with human suffering. Mm -hmm. 
whether or not somebody is battling clinical depression, whether they're battling a substance use disorder, whether they're battling associated anxiety or any of the other so-called dual diagnoses, they're suffering. And there's a through line that really connects substance use disorders and depression, and that is reduced activity in the brain's reward circuits. And probably a lot of the audience have heard of brain chemical dopamine, which is the go-to signaling molecule in those reward circuits. When we're depressed, there's a syndrome that goes along with it. Our fancy word, we got a fancy word, you ready? You know it, yeah. the audience may not. Anhedonia, yeah. from the Latin, no hedonic tone, no pleasure, right? Um, the dopamine-based reward circuits in clinical depression don't fire, so the person now doesn't enjoy their normal activities the way they used to. They don't have sex drive anymore. They don't uh, enjoy food anymore. And the person who is battling substance use disorder, when they stop using, what we typically find is their dopamine reward circuits are very blunted. They, they've been kind of kicked into artificially high modes of activity with whatever they were using. And now they're in this state, maybe they've gotten through withdrawal, but they're, they're in recovery and they often have a lot of craving and their reward circuits are throbbing in anticipation. Like what is out there for me? And they're going through day-to-day -day life often feeling like things are kind of blunted, things are kind of dim and pale and life doesn't have the vivid colors. Well, guess what? That's exactly what my depressed patients say. And we see the same kinds of underlying neurological deficits in both. And, and what is exciting to me is many of the same strategies that can help with that suffering and loss of pleasure in depression can also help in addiction. So to bring it back around full circle, what about the role of medication? What about the role of drugs? Well, it sounds kind of ironic, and I don't know if you want to go down this rabbit hole, but the idea of using drugs to treat substance use disorder strikes some people as um, counterintuitive, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet, there's a really compelling rationale for it in all kinds of ways, um, and we can talk about that in a bit, but one of the things the drugs can do is to help those reward circuits that have been kind of fried in the grip of addiction, in the grip of substance use disorder, to help them normalize more quickly so the person can enjoy the things, respond to the rewards that we're supposed to, rather than this artificial sort of reward. Well, when it comes to depression, you hear a lot about serotonin. You don't hear nearly as much about dopamine, but dopamine function is crucial in depression. Well, why do we hear so much more about serotonin? Because most of the depression drugs target serotonin. Why are the depression drugs not as effective as we wish they were? I mean, they certainly help a lot of people, don't get me wrong, millions of lives have been improved, but they're not the game changers for many people that we need them to be, that we want them to be. Why not? In part, because when you give a drug, like our SSRIs, our SSRIs, SNRIs to ramp up serotonin signaling, very often you're simultaneously pushing down on the dopamine system. Oh. That's why we have sexual side effects as one of the most common side effects, right? You're pushing down on the, on the reward circuitry. Well, that's, that's not really what we want in depression. So we need to augment that effect with other things. And you know, because we've talked about it a lot, that I'm a big, big proponent of the idea that there is no magic bullet. Mm -hmm. In depression, there's no single thing, fancy word, monotherapy. There's no monotherapy approach. There's no magic drug that's going to completely cure forever a person's depression most of the time. There are, you know, rare exceptions, but um, the drugs have a place, they have a role, but we have to augment it. We have to do all the things. We can't just rely on the one thing, we can't rely on the monotherapy. Um, so that's, that's just the first premise I wanted to put out there. Uh, I know there, there are a so, lot of different. So I'm, I'm curious now too, you know, and um, certainly we're presenting to the team earlier, which I'm so grateful for. It was so uh, informal and educational. But why, why, how are we in a situation in which, I mean, maybe it's just be science or we just don't have the application for it yet, but why don't we have drugs that do the dopamine thing rather than the serotonin we, thing? We do. Okay. 
So the one that probably a lot of the audience have heard of is, is the generic is bupropion. Yeah. The, the trade name is either, depending on whether you're taking it for smoking cessation or depression, the trade name is Wellbutrin for depression or, or Zyban for smoking cessation, same drug. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is that depression is often, and by often I mean over half the time, accompanied by a lot of anxiety. And if you give a drug like Wellbutrin, it's like, oh, okay, so we're gonna ramp up dopamine, that's good, we're gonna ramp up reward signaling, that's good. Occasionally, a patient will even have spontaneous orgasm on Wellbutrin. <laughs> okay. Um, side effect. Worth of the podcast. Right <laughs> <there>. <laughs> we, we will circle back around to the whole. There, there was a Grey's Anatomy episode, by the way. For Interesting. Interest, yeah. Um, so I, it's no joke, it can ramp up reward signaling but it can also ramp up anxiety okay. because the circuits are kind of cross-wired a little bit, which it's, it's a long story we don't have to go into. But so, um, well, what else can we use? Well, stimulants, right? Mm -hmm. ADHD meds like, um, like Adderall, like methylphenidate, Ritalin, like Vyvanse. All these drugs also ramp up dopamine. Can they be helpful in depression? Yes, absolutely. Are they commonly used? No. Why? Because, well, they're controlled substances, A, have a high addiction potential, or at least moderate addiction potential, B. But C, they also ramp up anxiety. Hmm. And so a lot of prescribers are very loath to use them, even though we've got these dopamine deficits in depression, that if anything, a lot of times, the medications that we're throwing at depression can make worse. So then it's like, all right, well, what can we do that's non-pharmacological to ramp up dopamine? And it turns out, thank God, there are lots of things like physical activity, like ambient sunlight exposure, which is about 100 times brighter than indoor lighting. And light is a drug. Literally, photons of light are drugs that hit specialized receptors in the back of the eye, in the retina, that have a broadband connection to the center of the brain, the hypothalamus, and they not only renormalize our body clock, which gets out of sync and depression, not only regulate our sleep, regulate our hormones, but kick up dopamine signaling. So we've probably all had this experience. When we go out on a bright, sunny day, like we happen to be enjoying today, um, if we go on a long hike or something, regardless of the activity level, we feel energized, we feel stimulated, and often we have better focus because of that sort of stimulant-like effect. When people are depressed, though, what do they do? They, they, they don't go outside. They crawl into a cave. Their brain is giving them a signal to shut down, pull away, withdraw. And part of effective clinical work with depressed populations is validating for them, like, look, your brain is telling you that you're sick. Your brain is telling you, just like when you had the flu, get away from everybody, crawl into a cave, lick your wounds, rest tight for a couple weeks till you heal. And when you have the flu, that's great. Listen to the brain. When you have depression, that's the last thing in the world you want to do because that's going to make it worse. Um, and so a lot of the threading the needle with depressed patients is validating, yes, of course you feel like shutting down. Yes, of course you don't want to be around other people. Yes, of course you have no energy and you have no initiative and you're suffering and you're hurting. But we have to partner together to help you not listen to these signals from your brain that are actually broken signals right now. Mm -hmm. And if we, can, if we can pull off that particular clinical trick, then we're actually ramping up dopamine signaling. And that's the part that I think so many people don't get. They're like, well, wait a minute. If we have a brain chemistry problem, the only possible way to fix it is to throw drugs at it or to you know, put some powerful magnets on the brain and call it TMS or you know, do electroshock therapy or something very somatic. But what we know from the realm of neuroscience, the realm that I'm trained in, is experience changes the brain. <laughs> and activity changes the brain. And the food we eat changes the brain. And our ambient light exposure changes the brain. So all the things we think of as like, oh, my grandma could have told me to go get some fresh air. My grandma could have told me, oh, go get some sun. Oh, be active. But grandma didn't know that this is like powerful, powerful psychoactive sort of intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing, though, is that uh, at least one of the primary barriers is that all of the things that you need, or at least a, a good um, 
a good chunk of the things that you need to get better, or at least to start to overcome depression, are things that your brain are telling you to not engage in. Exactly right, right. and that's part yeah. of the tragedy right. of depression, absolutely. And you know, just to, to build on that a little bit, so imagine I'm depressed, and my doctor gives me an antidepressant, let's say um, Lexapro. Sure. It's one that a lot of people have heard of, yeah. escitalopram. And um, one of the things that it's doing is it's eventually going to kick up activity in my serotonin circuits. What does that do? Well, it's going to help put the brakes a bit on my stress response circuits, which is good, because they tend to be way too active in depression. But they're also going to do this really cool, magical thing called neuroplasticity. They're going to increase the brain's ability to make new connections and new associations. And by the way, that ability is really compromised in depression. So when people are depressed, they cannot easily learn new things. They cannot easily acquire new associations and new parts of their repertoire. They're kind of closed. Sure. And so you give them a drug like Lexapro, it's like, oh, this is amazing. This is going to kick up the brain's growth hormone. It's called BDNF, if folks want to look it up. And now they're going to have greater neuroplasticity. Here's the problem. Most patients with depression who get treatment, all they get is the drug. And it's like, here, take this drug, and good luck with that. Go back to your life. And well, in a lot of cases, their life has some toxic elements to it. So we're sending them to an environment that's negative, or at least that has some prominent negative features, sometimes, by the way, as a side effect of the depression. Because when we're depressed, we're not at our best. And we can actually have a sort of corrosive effect on some relationships because we've been shut down and because we've been withdrawing yeah. and we've been ghosting people and we've been not responding to them. And now we give them the drug, okay, great, I got more plasticity, but I'm going back to a life that has a lot of negative elements and now I'm making those associations. So it's like, oh, the drug is making me more responsive to my environment and I've done nothing to fix my environment. <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe that's a reason why these drugs are not more effective than they actually turn out to be. Maybe these drugs have the potential to be a lot more effective if we could attend to the neuroplasticity angle and provide a supportive context, so provide okay. a beautifully healing, supportive milieu. Yeah. This sounds like an ad. I, I, I love it. I really and I'm, I'm thinking yeah, about, uh, going. <laughs> you know, for the, for, the, for the viewers out there that can't see, you know, your slides and your presentation, right? I'm thinking of the pie chart, right? Where 76, roughly 76, 77% of the time, they're just getting that, you know, monotherapeutic approach through medications. Most and that's, patients with depression, if they get treatment, all they're getting is meds. All they're getting is meds. That is wild. <laughs> when it's such a complex issue as we'll get into, certainly here around your web analogy and so forth. And then I think out of that as well, too, it's somewhere, you know, 4.8 to 5.6%, somewhere in there, just received psychotherapy alone. And then 18%, roughly, of the popular population receives both psychotherapy and medication as a yep. management. At the same time, in lieu of that pie chart and that incredible data, right, we have more depression, anxiety, and so forth than ever before. And then we have these medications, and no wonder we're arriving at sort of a frustration here in American culture. There's such a belief in the med only a sort of approach, yet it's not really resolving the problem. And it's kind of like, you know, for me, I, it just, I wanna shake the tree of American culture and say, let's wake up to this and let's put all these other benefits, like you were talking about, the light and all of these natural things, and also how through psychotherapy, maybe it's a residential program, maybe it's ambulatory, you know, uh, you were saying something uh, wonderful earlier as well too, like how can we be, you know, the frontal lobe, how can we be the, how can we do that for you as you oh, get well yeah, in yeah. the process? Yeah, should we unpack that a little bit? Yes, please. For, so, because <laughs> so. I, that's like page 9, 15, 100, it's all over the book, so <laughs> yeah, please unpack it. Okay, so um, depression hits so many different circuits in the brain and takes them offline or, or just compromises them so they don't work as well. And one of the most important to me is this set of circuits in the frontal cortex and they lateralize to the left. So it's really cool. People are always fascinated by left brain, right brain. And a lot of the popular ideas about what that is are, are off base, but <laughs> one of the, to put it gently, but w one of the ways that lateralization matters is the left frontal cortex has circuits that help us go after the things that we want hmm. and initiate 
sort of pull the trigger, if I can use, can I use that metaphor? Yes. Yeah. I'm in Colorado with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pull the trigger on our, um, the things we want to do. So if I'm sitting on the couch, I am sitting on, you know, if I'm sitting on a couch and I'm like, oh, I should get up and I should get up, it would help me to get up and go for a brisk walk outside and maybe walk the dog, whatever. Um, if I'm depressed, my left frontal cortex takes that impulse and it's like flatline. Yeah. Like, oh, I should do that. I got nothing. It's like I've fallen and I can't get up. It's like I'm sitting and I can't. I, and, and what our depressed patients tell us all the time is I know the things that will help me and I can't make myself do them. When I started crafting the Therapeutic Lifestyle Change Program for Depression, what several colleagues told me is, yes, we see the research, we see the science, we see the evidence, we know these things will help, but they're all the things people can't do when they're depressed. Right. And, and my gentle pushback was, friendly amendment, these are things they cannot initiate often when they're <laughs> depressed. But if they have someone to partner with them, to provide them that spark of initiative that their left frontal cortex is not giving, then they can do them. So let's take exercise, for example. So what is the antidepressant dose of exercise? Luckily, it's very low. The, the most robustly established antidepressant, what do I mean by antidepressant? As effective as the average drug for the average patient, 30 minutes of brisk aerobic walking three times a week. I'll say it again, because it's low. 30 minutes of brisk aerobic walking three times a week. That's been tested in head-to-head -head trials against Zoloft, sertraline, twice now at my alma mater, Duke University, and found to be every bit as effective in the short term, more effective at preventing recurrence. And it's super low dose. But patients with depression usually have trouble making themselves do it. So what do we do? We partner with them. We say, you know, would you let us play the role of your left frontal cortex? Would you let us schedule the exercise with you or with your trainer, would you let us then give you a little prompt, a little tickler, a little reminder? What do you, you call it tickler? That's fine. I think yeah, that works. Yeah. Tickler, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I'm looking at the yeah. millennial in the room. It's I'm, like, I, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm in between. Is there a cooler word? I'm on for the that? latter end of the millennial spectrum, yeah. right? Brandon, so you've I got to have it. a cooler word. Yeah. yeah. I'm the, I don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I, I don't so have a cooler word that. than tickler. Yeah. Okay, tickler. Yeah. I'm a Gen Xer, so I got nothing. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah, yeah exactly. and I got yeah. likewise. <laughs> okay. Um, so a little tickler a half hour before the workout. Mm. Like, hey, you know, we're, we just, just a little reminder. We, you know, we're Mrs. Jones, you know, we're going to be meeting in a half hour. And it's like, oh, now the trainer is playing the role of the left frontal cortex, giving that signal, that spark, that the depressed person's not getting on their own. So what do we find? People with depression can exercise. People with depression can enjoy exercise. People with depression can benefit enormously. But they cannot make themselves do it, usually. Sure. So we have to let go of the judgment. We have to let go of the nagging. We have to let go of the self-blame and just be freaking realists about it. It's like. Let's validate for people that are suffering with depression. It's like, yes, depression is taking you away from your best self. It's robbing you of capabilities that you normally have, and there's no judgment. Mm -hmm. But we're going to partner with you to help you do the things that you need to do to get well. Because when you're well, you'll be able to initiate all the things again, mm -hmm. hopefully. Yeah. If you could before you got depressed, then you'll be able to again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's, the, that's the special sauce in the TLC model because, you know, at Peaks Recovery, certainly we have an opportunity to frontline with medications and sure. do what we can there. And I hope that the viewers watching this as well, too, can hear all the things that doctors are trying to roll through in their heads as prescribers or even mid-level providers as they go through this. Because, I mean, that's back to my point about the dopamine medication. It's like, don't we have these things? You know, it was kind of rhetorical, right? We do have these things, but why don't we throw that at them, you know, in that sort of way? But because well, it comes with all these consequences, a med, and then a med to manage the symptoms of the med, and, you know, potentially all of this, you know, fallout. Um, and then on the other side of that, we have psychotherapy, you know, but the med is going to take time to ramp up, and the depressed patient is having difficulty just sitting in that environment, and it feels like as a, the next sensible thing and why this TLC model is so fascinating uh, is because now we can do so much more with the time that we have them within these residential settings and differently than the challenges of your, you know, your research studies where they had to kind of go home, come back, report, that sort of thing. In an You've got them. 
Yeah. yeah. And you can provide a level of support and a level of, for want of a better word, stress management. Sure. That, Absolutely. you know, is, yeah. is just going to be so incredibly beneficial for many patients. And so um, with the integration, I mean, uh, when you talk about depression, I just keep having this, uh, this idea of like paralysis, right? It's like almost like a neural paralysis mm -hmm. where things just are stuck. Like you can't move in any way, shape or yeah. form neurologically to a certain degree. And then you have something, you introduce medication, which gives you neuroplasticity, right? So you've got some room to maneuver at that point. But then that desire to, to actually make those changes and push forward and push through that paralysis requires almost like neural, like a neural partner, right? Like somebody to come and partner with you Absolutely. in order to push you along. And so then you have these, all of a sudden though, you've got all of the major components, especially in something like a residential program, where you can really come at it from all these different angles. And like you said, do all the things, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And then we have IOP, right. where we get to help them make those habits, lifelong habits and, right. and change the environment they're in. And that, I think that's what's exciting about this. Yeah, so that's a really important point too, right? Because we were talking about this earlier, but so much of the, if we, if we zoom out to 30,000 feet and look, look at the whole landscape of mental health and treating depression, what we see is it's challenging to treat depression in the short term, in the first couple months, but we have the tools. If we're willing to do all the things, we've got the tools. It's like, we've got this in the great majority of cases. The bigger challenge is treating it in the long term. Very similar case, I would say, I think you'd agree with substance use disorders where Absolutely. you know, the short term outcomes are better generally than the long term outcomes. And yet we're playing the long game. Mm -hmm. We want our patients to thrive in the long term. And so that means now how can we pivot from this very cocoon-like, can I use that word? This oasis-like yeah. yeah. okay. environment of 45 days where I'm going to be really well cared for, but everything in my environment is controlled. And now I've got to pivot back out to the real world, my life as it exists outside. How do I take all of these new tools and skills and associations and generalize them out to my life in the world? And that, that is, I mean, it's like you're speaking my love language now. Because, <laughs> because I mean, I'm so excited about this, this 45 day residential. I mean, that's miraculous that that exists. But then to be able to take that and take it out into somebody's you know, real world life is, is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so well, there are a lot of different directions we can go yeah. with this. Yeah, one of, the, one of the challenges of integrated care, and I don't know if, uh, if there's you know, a tone you can put on it or give us some insights or just a general conversation, but you go to integrate the care and major depressive patient and SUD patient are sitting next to each other and say, I'm not like that person. Mm -hmm. And I'm not like that person. And why are we in the same room together? Yeah. And I, you're treating something different, but it reminds, you know, going back to that, you know, the, the dopamine, you know. Uh, reward circuits. You know, reward yeah. circuits yeah. and scenario. That, that's, the, that's the intersection. That's the bridge. Well, yeah. the two, two bridges. One is profound suffering. Yeah. Profound suffering. And, you know, I, I don't know if you all find this, but I find that when people are suffering, a lot of the superfluous things in life get stripped away and people get very real. Because it's like, you know, I mean, like I worked for three months on a brain tumor clinic with patients that for the most part had about a year to live. And it was the most existentially profound experience professionally of my life because people just get so, most people, not everyone, but most people just get very dialed in to what's important and what's not. And I feel like a lot of SUD patients get that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been to the brink, a lot Absolutely. of them, right? They, they've been to the brink. A lot of depressed patients have been suicidal. They've been to the brink. Some of them have made attempts. Some of them have made serious attempts. And then, you know, now they're at this moment where they're like, I, you know, I can't take much more of this. I, I need some relief. And they're coming to you, and they're desperate. And your SUD patients are coming to you, and they're desperate. So they're experiencing the suffering, and they have compromised reward circuits. And, you know, for those who want to take the deep dive, there's a dopamine receptor subtype that helps coordinate activity in the, these circuits are called D2 receptors. And long story short, 
people with SUD have low levels of D2 receptors, so their reward circuits don't work correctly. They don't get high on life, but they get way, way, way too much reward from substances of abuse. People with depression, also low D2 receptors, also wonky reward circuitry. So they're kindred. Yeah. And by the way, there's a lot of overlap, because a lot of people with depression self-medicate, and a lot of addicts become depressed. And a lot of those who are not addicts, but just SUD, you know, abuse folks get depressed, so. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. both of those worlds, those uh, people suffering from either SUD or depression feel isolated. They feel alone. Oh, they you. feel yeah. completely disconnected. And, Brilliant. And again, yeah, earlier in the day, we talked about the idea of, you know, the opposite of addiction being connection. And so the, I, and we were talking about the opposite of suffering is also connection. And yeah. so it's interesting, you get, it's this ironic thing again, where you have two people sitting next to each other who feel so far apart but they're actually so close together. Yeah. And one of the actual things that would make them feel even better was is to find that connection with each other and to share that. So it's just this kind of, uh, I don't know, I think that we, we live in a world of irony a lot of times in yeah. what we do. There's so many levels of irony that we are dealing with and it's just really interesting to hear them pointed out that way and a, sort of have a different angle and a different lens to look at it through. Yeah. That's a great connection, I love that. Yeah, just this idea that whether somebody's SUD or depressed, they're experiencing the sense of alienation. Absolutely. Right? The yeah. sense of isolation and often just profound disconnection. Yeah. Often also, I hadn't thought about this, but profound self-loathing. Mm. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. literally a symptom of depression, yeah. is self-deprecation, self-loathing, but so common in SUD as well because people have made really bad decisions often Absolutely. and they're beating themselves up and yeah. they're seeing the fallout. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we, as it, you know, at Peaks, we've really, we really, we work really hard to try to get rid of this idea of uh, substance use disorder and mental health disorder being different. They are so the same, you know, mm -hmm. they are so intertwined. It's, it's, again, it goes, it goes back to suffering and it goes back to disconnection. It goes back to self-loathing. It goes back to this, a sort of neural paralysis that you exist in. And, and the treatment, again, is, uh, is, can, is, there's so much overlap and it can be so similar for both sides. Exactly. And it's, um, yeah, so it's just, it's great to hear, I don't know, some affirmation for that, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. well, it, I get really excited about it. And, yeah. you know, the other thing I just want, if it's okay to circle back to something you said earlier, yeah. just yeah. about, um, okay, so you've got 45 days if, if somebody's coming residential, if they're doing intensive outpatient, it's a little bit different. But when somebody's suffering, they want relief immediately. Mm -hmm. Sure. If we use a standard antidepressant, so the typical treatment that the majority of patients are gonna get, one antidepressant, standard off the shelf, garden variety antidepressant, they're told usually like two to six weeks, depending if you're lucky, two weeks, if you're not so lucky, maybe four to six weeks before it kicks in. And we see anxiety three weeks, depression four weeks is typical. Place. Okay, there you go, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and there are exceptions, yeah, or sure. the, you know. Uh, so what, what do we got that's faster? Well, you know, there's a lot of excitement around more, I think of them, maybe you all don't, as a little bit more extreme interventions. Um, some folks obviously have heard for decades about electroshock, we now call electroconvulsive therapy. It's faster, has there are reasons why it's not a go-to intervention for most people, but it is faster. TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, is faster for some people, the, the effects are, not as robust yet as I would like them to be, but there's, there's still, it can be faster. Well, guess what? This is where I get super excited. Light therapy, bright light therapy. Not just for somebody who has winter onset depression, not just for somebody who has seasonal depression or sad, some people have heard, for any depression. Effects can kick in within five to seven days. It's fast wow. acting. Now I've got a nutritional intervention that can kick in within seven days. Acetyl-L-carnitine. And acetyl-L-carnitine is like, it's, it's a nutrient that our bodies mostly have to, I say a nutrient, it's, it's a, a nutrient that our bodies make out of substrate that we get from our diet, how about that? And the more we age, the crappier our body is at making it. So if you look at people who are depressed in their teens and 20s, their levels of acetyl-L-carnitine are usually sort of okay. They're lower than we would want them to be, but they're, they're okay. And, and 
what it means is if their levels are low, the powerhouse, the mitochondria of their brain cells are not as efficient. And so literally their brain is getting a bit underpowered and the circuits that they need uh, get fatigued more quickly. So they can't fire as efficiently. Okay, so we can supplement with acetyl-L-carnitine and the best research is 2,000 milligrams a day, divided dose, so 1,000 milligrams twice a day. And not only in the best meta-analyses, studies of studies, does acetyl-L-carnitine outperform placebo with an effect size that's roughly on par with medication, has no common side effects, and effects kick in typically within about a week. And were you it's, saying that's more important with age? More important with, yeah, thank you, Ryan. It's, it, yeah, so for those of us who are of a certain age, <laughs> I'll put us in this, in this category. Um, on the wrong side of 40, how about? Fair on the wrong side of 40, <laughs> or maybe the right side, depending yeah. on your point of view. If you, if you have more we'll of a the right con side. Confucian yeah. sort of take, it's the right side of 40. Um, yeah, uh, it, there, there's some really nice signal in the, in the research that says that middle-aged and older depressed individuals really respond. Great. And younger individuals are less likely to have that. I hadn't heard of that before, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool little, little tidbit. Um, and there are other things as well, but I guess my point is, that even if we don't want to go to something as extreme as electroconvulsive therapy to get that really fast effect, because we're, we're all impatient. We're Americans, fast food. for God's sake, yeah. right? Of course we're Absolutely. impatient. But people are suffering. People's lives are hanging in the balance. Of course we're impatient. We don't have to wait four weeks. We have things already in the toolkit that can get this recovery going and get it going pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Can I give you one more? Please. Okay, we did, we did not rehearse this, we did not script this. I'm totally going off script now, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. And Brandon is- Be bold, is, yeah. be bold, I'm open to it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Martin Luther said, sin boldly. So here we go. Um, Love it, good <laughs> intro, yeah. We'll it's a little reformation yeah. tidbit. Yeah, the viewers at home are like. <laughs> Come on, sin boldly. Where is yeah, he taking yeah. this? Yeah, all right. you, you'll edit that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is a novel integrative intervention called chronotherapy. Have you heard of it? I'm not familiar. Okay, it involves three things. The first of which is gonna blow your mind. Yeah. You wanna know how to get an immediate antidepressant effect with someone even if they're severely depressed. It will, warning, disclaimer, it will only last for about 12 hours. Keep the person up for 36 straight hours. Huh. I kid you not. Acute sleep deprivation, 36 hours of continuous wakefulness, has a profound acute antidepressant effect. Why do we not use it? Aside from the obvious, people don't like staying up 36 hours. Because <laughs> as soon as the person goes to sleep, when they wake up the next day, they're right back where they started. There's oh. zero enduring effect. But Proof of concept, ooh, sleep deprivation, strategically employed antidepressant. We can build on that. Second component, circadian circuit reset. Most people with depression have a body clock that is out of sync with the ambient world around them. The most common form of circadian phase shifting is the person's body clock thinks that it is a couple hours, maybe three hours later than it really is. So we say it's phase advanced. So they wake up, let's say their wake time, what's the wake time in the room here? 6 a.m.? Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. say 6 a.m.? Sounds great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so their wake it. time is 6 a.m., but they're wide awake at 3 a.m. because their body clock is telling them, oh, it's 6 a.m. Mm. We call this, by the way, terminal insomnia because it's at the terminus of their sleep cycle. Interesting. Okay, so we want to phase shift them three hours, right? And that will help a lot. It will help with their sleep, which has antidepressant therapeutic effects. The final thing is the use of bright light therapy, which we've talked about before. So you combine all three. There is a center for chronotherapy in Chicago that's a residential facility we really should talk about this. This is pretty cool because yeah, you guys could do yeah. this. Um, where they have patients come in and they're, they're like, okay, 
we're going to combine these three things. So we're going to keep you up 36 straight hours, and then we're going to let you sleep for a while. Um, actually, it'll be more than 36 straight hours. It'll be, we're basically going to shift their body clock about four hours every day until we've run all the way through the, the clock. If you think, if you do the math in your head, it's like five or six days. Yeah. And we're gonna hit them with a massive dose of therapeutic bright light as soon as they wake up to give a signal of circadian reset to be like, okay, hey, you know what? Um, it's now 8 a.m., but your brain thinks it's noon. Hey, it's now noon or 8 a.m., but your brain thinks it's four in the afternoon. And then the next day, eight in the evening. And after a week, you've run the entire cycle, you're back around where you started, and you can get them entrained perfectly to the world around them. You get the acute benefit of sleep deprivation, it doesn't go away, because you're continually keeping the brain off balance, and you have the antidepressant effect of the bright light. And, and they can now connect with people because they're up at the same time as other Exactly, <laughs> yeah, and at the Center for Chronotherapy in Chicago, they, um, you know, they try to use the milieu of it, right? So they have sure. like activities for folks when it's four in the morning and they're <laughs> all up and they, and they shine pretty bright light out in the patient day room where they're all hanging out. Um, so it's a, it's a, but it's a very fast acting, huh. very powerful. Oh, by the way, it's been used in bipolar depression <laughs> and patients with bipolar are exquisitely sensitive to light exquisitely sensitive to changes in circadian rhythm, exquisitely sensitive to sleep deprivation. And it has a roughly 50% acute response rate in bipolar depression in a week, which is far higher than any, in a week, any current therapeutic medication that we have for bipolar depression. Um, so there's some, all kinds of really cool, exciting potentials, I would say. And not to veer off script here, but uh, on the manic side of bipolar disorders oh, yeah. too, wasn't there a light benefit or an anti-light benefit? Yeah, because, yeah, thank you. So bipolar patients, I don't know if you guys have ever experimented with this, but bipolar patients, exquisitely sensitive to light and very sensitive to um, uh, time change, you know, going on mm -hmm. and off of daylight savings time can often be a trigger for depression or mania. But it's recently been discovered that when a patient with bipolar is manic or mixed, where they're sort of simultaneously manic and some depressive symptoms, if you use polarized wraparound goggles or lenses, polarized in the sense that they're that deep amber, okay. kind of like if, if folks know the rock star Bono of YouTube, <laughs> um, he has glaucoma. Mm. and has to filter out that light for medical reasons. So it's the same basic principle. Um, patients with mania who filter out, probably most people know about blocking blue light, like at night, it's mm -hmm. blue light is very stimulating. Patients with mania where they block out blue light 24-7 and then stay out of direct sunlight, it has enormous potential to break a manic episode and can be used in tandem with anti-manic medication to potentiate the effect, to quicken the effect, to speed it up, to make it more robust. And in some cases, I'm not recommending this at all, but in some <laughs> cases it's been used without medication for patients, as you probably know, sometimes when patients are manic, they, they do everything against medical Absolutely. advice because they have impaired judgment and they will not take the med. But sometimes they will agree to wear the cool Bono glasses, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, it sounds like a fantastic alternative. <laughs> yeah. um, so I feel like we're just scratching the, the tip of the iceberg mm. on leveraging <laughs> the neurological power of lifestyle-based intervention. These things are like drugs in their effects on the brain. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Powerful stuff. So Dr. Ryan, yeah. You got the challenging job. We got to keep them up for 36 hours. <laughs> you, you get hazardous duty pay for that, though, right? They got, they... I, I love the idea. I think we need a little more robust nursing staff to pull that. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd have to definitely make some new hires for sure. Yeah. No, but I'm curious, Dr. Ryan. I mean, to somebody who you, you know, you live in the trenches with this, right? And I've seen, I, and I've, you know, being in rounds with you and um, 
with working with the clinical team, the medical team, even our residential team, and, and seeing people struggle and, and really trying to get a hold on what is going to be the best approach to help stabilize them, to help keep them engaged, to help. Uh, I mean, we're not even at symptom reduction yet at that point, right? But uh, but listening to this and listening to this sort of approach, and which does feel integrative, it actually has a, a, a genuinely holistic feel to it. I'm just curious what your response is. I love it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it has the p potential now to fix them while they're with us, but more importantly, to set them up for success in the future. Um, when, when he spoke earlier today, Steve, you talked about a spider web. Um, yeah. Oh, how, let's, do we want to? Yeah, go ahead and talk well, about the spider no, web. I want to hear, hear you do it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he talked about depression be, having a lot of different attachments. Absolutely. And basically, every, every thing you can pull off. So a medication, you're pulling off a big string. You're pulling off another string with light therapy, with exercise, with connectedness, with nutrition. What am I missing? Uh, habits of healthy sleep. Habits yeah. of healthy sleep. I mean, you're just pulling more off of that Gut brain access. Gut brain mm -hmm. access. And, yeah. And uh, I think the more, we, more of those strings we can pull off, um, the better people are going to do. I, I love the analogy. I think it's great for... Thank you. Yeah. yeah for I metaphor? Mean, metaphor yeah. analogy? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, a patient uh, actually... Uh, many years ago said to me, you know, I just feel like I'm caught in this web. Yeah. Um, and it always stayed with me, yeah. that, that image of like being trapped in this web. And then when I started thinking about how depression involves all these different layers of dysregulation, molecular, neurochemical, hormonal, cognitive, affective, attentional, and we haven't even talked about like the attentional biases. People when they're depressed, the brain only wants to go to negative things. People, yeah. when they're depressed, they, they don't want to be around other people. So there's the social withdrawal piece. There's the, the, I mean, there's so many different layers. And it's like this web. And our typical approach, like we talked about earlier, is monotherapy. We're going to do the one thing. We're looking for the one magic stone that we can throw at the web and bring the whole thing down. And sometimes we get lucky. Sometimes we get lucky. And the one thing really does bring it down for some people some, for some time. But God, it just makes so much more sense to think about, like, what if I have a whole pocket full of stones or, you know, like a shotgun or something where I can just blast this thing? And I feel like, how about this? Depression is so much more treacherous than we give it credit for being. It's so much harder to fix. It is fixable. Yeah. It's completely fixable, but it's so much harder to, to get it well and keep somebody well. And we do our patients a grave disservice by being very cavalier and very, oh, yeah, 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 we got this. Our, these meds are like magic. These, yeah. It's like, eh, the meds, you know, they're helpful, but they're not all that Absolutely. for so many patients. But if we're willing to really take it seriously, like you all do at Peaks, that's what I get really excited about. Yeah. I'm going to send you so many patients. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> love it. Also, would love to figure out a, you know, a path forward to, you know, we have a setting in which, you know, it's a little bit different than the ambulatory style of setting in which we could approach, you know, maybe a project of research or something around it to really ignite this and uh, locate its value proposition because this is exciting stuff. And uh, I don't want to insist that we're the only treatment center thinking of this in America, but um, I think our industry is sort of missing this opportunity to really bring in all of these things at the same time. But to do that, we have to responsibly think about integration of care. Absolutely. We cannot just talk about drugs <laughs> in these well, settings. That's a really visionary, a rich, genuinely visionary yeah. sort of approach. Because, I mean, here's what I'm thinking. And maybe you all tell me if I'm too naive about this, because <laughs> you know the biz way better than I do. My feeling is if you could get some sort of funding, sponsorship, to pay for the research, to like legitimately show with a carefully controlled, conducted research study that this kind of multi-pronged approach, this doing all the things approach mm -hmm. is highly effective. Now you've got this publication that you can take to all the industry people, all the leaders, all the, you know, and say, don't just take our word for it. Like yeah. we, you know, we have independent verification that what we're doing is working, and we'd like we'd like to make this the gold mm -hmm. standard. Yeah, 
But to do it right, it's going to take some money. Some money, some time. <laughs> a lot of time. All the a lot things. of things. <laughs> yeah. To get for, it right. Why did you point to me? Because you're, you're, <laughs> when I, when I hear you know. all the things, I think that is your. Yeah. <laughs> you are Mr. All the yeah, Things. That yeah. is. Wait, Doctor, Doctor. That's yeah. his. He's, <laughs> he's director title. of all things. Chief, at, of, all chief things. of all things at Peach yeah. Recovery Center. That's Centers. fair. That's um, fair. There's so much <laughs> to expand on, to talk about, to be excited about on this. I do, you know, while we got the the sort of the med the, me the strict medical lens here, um, before we invite the the clinical side of things into this, you know, the anti-ruminating, you know, mm. uh, psychotherapy psychotherapy approaches and so forth into this, I I did want to touch base, you know. Chris Burns, one of the hosts, president and founder of Peaks Recovery Centers, is often talking about the vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I would like to talk about is that, you know, it really uh, struck me as kind of obvious for myself when you were talking about it earlier with our team, but, you know, I wake up in the morning and I get the sunshine, I think, this is a beautiful day. Look at this mountain that's in front of me, Pikes Peak, America's Mountain, man, so beautiful. You know, we live among nature, we get to see deer running across the highway, we get it all here in, you know, Colorado <laughs> uh, in that regard. And so, you know, you get this high on life sort of experience when your dopamine levels are up. And that's my common experience and why it resonates with me so much with those lower dopamine levels, that's the vulnerable person we're talking about, right? Because they're taking the drug and they take it and all of a sudden it's the mountain, they're high on life. This is what this guy Brandon was experiencing when he was talking to me about looking at the mountain that I don't experience. Yeah, exactly right. So that's, that's, that's one of the real um, underappreciated and I think misunderstood elements of the um, the brain of the person vulnerable to addiction, vulnerable mm -hmm. to substance use disorder, is they're very often genetically predisposed to those low D2 receptor levels. So in other words, genetically predisposed to not be able as much to get high in life and to have the drug be able to hack into their reward circuits. The drug takes over and says, this is what you've been missing. Yeah. This is, now you're home. Now you're in a space where you feel on top of the world. By the way, fun side note, psilocybin actually does not light up the brain's reward circuitry. Or LSD or any of those. Well, it really does. I, I didn't mean, get that message be, when I was doing it. It can, it can be, I mean, obviously, Brandon it can be really. I saw all the lights. It can well, be really not rewarding. Like it can be, yeah, I mean, depending on your own experience, it certainly can have a reward component. By the way, a lot of folks probably know psilocybin is now being actively investigated as a supercharging agent for effective psychotherapy yeah. for depression. So, you know, it, it increases plasticity. It, it opens people up to reconceptualizing their stuckness. And under expert therapeutic guidance, it can be a catalyst for a lot of healing, for a lot of, you know, sort of rapid response. So I think it's been a little bit overhyped, oversold, but I'm not in any way opposed to that kind of research and work. I just want to... Basically, I'm just giving like a public uh, service announcement yeah. for Magic Mushroom. <laughs> um, they, they are being actively investigated at some of the leading research centers yeah. in the world as a legitimate psychiatric agent. But they don't, they're not a drug of addiction typically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like alcohol, how about? I mean, there's a very common drug yeah. of addiction. Um, you know, can I say this? We were out to dinner last night. There may have been a glass or two of alcohol consumed um, in a very responsible manner. And um, a little bit of dopaminergic reward, which you know yeah. all drugs of addiction do. But if somebody has high D2 receptor levels, they just walk away. They're just like, oh yeah, that was fine, whatever. Um, and so I, I feel like once we start viewing addiction through this lens of these are our brothers and sisters, our fellow travelers who are laboring right now with the burden of reward circuits that don't get lit up the way they're supposed to. When they hug a friend, when they see the beauty of nature, when they have an, uh, a professional accomplishment, when they have sex, when they do anything except for using. And when they're using, then it lights everything up. And that's a tragedy. And, yeah. you know, it's like if we can have that viewpoint, for me at least, I'll just speak to myself, judgment melts away. And compassion seems to be the only sane response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, I just, I, 
I love the work you're doing. Um, I, I love, I love the compassion. I love the sanity. I love the, you know, the community. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. Well, I think that's beautiful and exactly what we're, you know, what we're, we're coming to here. When we appreciate, we can all appreciate that decisions are being made around alcohol use, drug use, and so forth. But at the level of decision making, they, those who suffer from addiction don't know that that is the underlying thing within their being, right, that's going to get ignited and that experience is going to happen, making them most vulnerable or susceptible to, gosh, I want to do that one more time just to, because that felt really right uh, in that moment and displace this moral, personal responsibility conundrum thing we find ourselves stuck in, I think, as a society to say, well, they chose. Right. Well, we all choose, but we're all kind of vulnerable and uh, susceptible in different ways within those choices. And that displaces personal responsibility uh, in a much different way than I experience personal responsibility. And I, just think that, like I think that choice narrative is actually true for people who struggle with depression as well. Because yeah. we're so cavalier with right. what we identify as depression. There is this idea, well, then just stop being depressed. You know, yeah. like go do stuff oh to my make God. yourself feel better. Just you snap know? out of it. Just Absolutely. Do yeah, the, the things whole, that you... It's like stop doing the drugs. Snap out of the... Get, stop being so sad all the time. You know, watch a funny movie. You know, that, it's, it's all of these very, like, simplistic, very misinformed kind of perceptions that we yeah. have that are ingrained culturally and have turned what are really debilitating illnesses into taboos. Absolutely. And one of the really interesting things that happens when somebody's recovering from addiction is it takes a while, and by a while, I mean like three to 12 months mm -hmm. for their reward circuits to start getting normal again. Near normal. Near, near, near normal. normal, yeah, yeah. No, more normal. <laughs> normal enough yeah. to be, to get them past the craving and that, you know. Um, once they can push through with massive support and compassion and acceptance to get to a place of sustained recovery. Their D2 receptors start to normalize. Their reward circuit starts to normalize. They start to regain the ability to get high on life. Why? Because substance use actually changes the brain and pushes those D2 receptors down. Mm -hmm. Substance use actually makes the reward circuits more blunted. And sobriety extended through time allows the reward circuits to normalize and heal. Experience changes the brain, and that's a profound sort of thought. Yes, we may be born genetically more vulnerable, less vulnerable, but guess what? I've known lots of people who were born genetically not vulnerable to addiction, never had a problem until they were prescribed an opiate, mm -hmm. prescribed a benzodiazepine like Xanax. By the way, benzodiazepines, the number one most prescribed class of psychiatric meds in the US. Party drugs. <laughs> yeah. What could possibly, like, what oh could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Zanny. Yeah, it's our most prescribed That's drug. That's crazy. Um, so anyway, I'm not here to bash, well, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so easy to but, find in the black market as well, too. Of I mean, course. It's, it's but, everywhere. But here's my point. Yeah. I have known people who were, as far as I know, the only person in their very vast extended genetic circle that had an addiction. They were addicted to benzos. Why? Because they're typically family practice doctors. 90% of, no offense, 90% of benzos <laughs> are prescribed by general practice docs, not psychiatrists. Psychiatrists usually see the danger, usually, not always. The best, fam <laughs> the best family practice, not always. The best family practice docs see the danger, but a lot don't, right? Okay. So they're prescribed the benzo as a sleep aid, yeah. but they take it every night. Yeah. After getting their Ritalin and Adderall. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. Right. So, but, but then after a couple years, now they are completely addicted. Yeah. They did not start off with an addictive vulnerability. We created the addictive vulnerability. But now that they're addicted, their D2 receptor levels are low, even though they were born with a nice high genetic level. You see it? Mm -hmm. So regardless of whether, if you're born with a low level, well, guess what? Getting connected with people, being immersed in community, exercising regularly, uh, having better nutrition, getting good sleep, all those things actually raise your D2 receptor levels, make you less vulnerable. And so people time. get out of our detox and they're like, why do I still feel crappy? Yeah. And then yeah. 
you have to be honest, it's going to take a year before you f start feeling near normal. Yeah. And two years before you're fairly normal. Yeah. And well, Dr. Ryan, every addiction treatment center website says we can fix this. We can <laughs> support this. And I think that to your point, and the reason I'm highlighting that, because I'm vulnerable to it, you know, we want to be able to, in a position to help people. And our website says something similar. I think we want to have more transparent, honest discussions about what this is going to take from mental health primary to SUD primary. Yep you know, a dual diagnosis of, you know, maybe both categories uh, in that regard, that we're dealing with something quite complex and it's not taboo. We don't shake it and it goes away. We don't say stop thinking it and it goes away, you know, or just throw these monotherapy approaches at it and it goes away. We've learned in real time the ineffective nature of all of these approaches and it's time to get real and honest about that, support the public to recognize that, yes, these things are valuable, but it's not a single shot. And we need to work toward all of these things in support of that. And I know to, the, to be charitable to our industry, insurance is running a lot of this. You know, you know through you know, TMS clinic and so forth, like that front end medication, we have to see the failure first before we can <laughs> intervene with other things at the level of insurance. That's nonsense. It perpetuates the issue in a way as well too. So, not only is the situation complex for major depressive disorder, SUD, and so forth, it's complex from the downward pressure we experience as a society uh, for how these things are paid for, delivered in real time. Um, that tangent, I suppose, for another day, but just wanted to <laughs> highlight that from what you were stating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, if you need help, come to Peaks. I think we do cutting-edge medications. I think we have top-notch curriculum, top-notch therapists, and we're going to start integrating more holistic um, effects that are going to set people up for the future. I think that's, that's the next step for us. And, and yeah, and I, I love the fact that there's a kind of an interesting dance between, I mean, one of your core values is like unvarnished honesty. You've never told me that, but I can see it, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just being really genuine and honest. But at the same time, there's a wisdom component to like, there are helpful truths and there's a timing to it. And I, so here's just my, my take on this and I'll throw it out there and maybe this is a horrible idea, but I feel like when somebody is just starting down the path of recovery from addiction, it's too much to give them the truth of like, it could be two years. Mm. Brother, it could be two years before. It's, it's like, okay, you know what? This drug is, literally ruining your life, and you know it, and that's why you're here. Um, and we are here for you, we've got your back, we're gonna partner with you, and we'll get you through the toughest stretch of it, and we're gonna give you all kinds of tools, all kinds of support, and every day, you're gonna get one step closer to this goal. And we're not gonna lie and say it's an easy road, but it's a valuable road and it's so worth doing. Yeah. And you know, millions of people have discovered that. They've, it's like that path has been blazed, that trail has been blazed, we know it. But you know what I mean? So like Absolutely. to celebrate the small wins, Absolutely. to celebrate, yeah. like every day is a win. Every day of sobriety, every day of, you know, is a win. And yeah, at the end of 45 days, okay, we're gonna be honest. Like this, this was the first phase of your journey. But if you quit now, your odds of staying well you know, without doing phase two, not great. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I think it's, I think the idea of it being a journey is exactly what it is. And it's, it's a journey of discovery. It's a journey of healing. It's a journey of repair, both yeah. uh, psychologically and, and physiologically. And being able to, like you said, celebrate the, ent the entire spectrum of what recovery is, whether it's recovery from substance use or recovery within mental health, um, with suffering from mental health diagnoses, it's, it's a journey. Every recovered addict that I've known personally has told me that early on that journey, they had to wholeheartedly embrace the wisdom of, just think about today. Absolutely. Can you get through, and if, you, if that's too big, can you get through the next hour? Right. And we're here for you, and we got you, and you know, we're gonna get you through this. It's like, we face these moments of incredible weakness and temptation, but it's like, I can power through the next hour or the, this day. And if that person who's feeling depleted and overwhelmed has to think about, oh my God, it's a two year journey to get, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's too much truth. Yeah, don't even think about, yeah. It's too yeah, much absolutely. truth for them right, right. now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, so. you gotta, there's gotta be hope, right? There's gotta be some right. next thing. So maybe we don't think about it 
I think family systems should appreciate this is going to have a major time component to it, but we celebrate the successful interventions along the way. We celebrate every win. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we don't burden people with the, we see, it's like, you know, with kids, it's like you don't burden your kids with, there's certain knowledge that like, they'll be ready for it someday, but like right now, they don't <laughs> need to grapple with the problem of evil. Right. You know? <laughs> Why are there psychopaths that torment people? And it's like, you know what, honey, we'll, we'll get there someday. But like, <laughs> you, you know, though, I, I will say, I think there's a time where it, it does benefit people to, to know that, to know that, yes, it, my brain will get back to normal. Because, they, they, because yeah. they have this fear that it's never going to get better. Absolutely. Right? And, and it will. Yeah. Um, and they, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, um, I suppose as the host, I got to, I got to cut it at some point. The social media, the kids, they can only watch clips in oh, yeah. you know, 30 seconds, five <laughs> minutes at a time. So I'm sure somebody's popping popcorn in the background right now, you know, gonna come back to it. I think they're still no, talking. No, wait, yeah. there's, uh, yeah, no, go ahead. So, <laughs> I was gonna say there's a drinking game, but this is the wrong audience. <laughs> right. uh, so hard cut off there. We'll, 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 take, we'll take it out Cliff, of that like, I cannot believe you did The old wow. clinical psychology you jokes coming up. You can tell I'm with college undergrads. Absolutely. All, yeah, all week it's long. a totally different setting. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So, Sorry, Brian. No worries, no worries. And in appreciation of um, you, uh, Dr. Alardi, being on this with us, thank you so much, Dr. Ryan, for joining us as Absolutely. well, too. Clint Nicholson all things Peaks Recovery Centers. To the viewers out there, I certainly hope this was supportive, helpful to your family systems, uh, the knowledge download that's taking place, and hopefully creating some curiosity for you and your loved one about how you can approach treatment options down the road. Check out Dr. Stephen Alardi's book, The Depression Cure, Amazon, all the bookstores. It's a great read. On the next episode, we're gonna talk about the shtick the thing that is the, the thread that makes all of this true at the end of the day. We'll talk about it, we'll challenge it, we'll do all those things. Uh, remember, if you got uh, additional questions, thoughts, ideas, finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com. We'll put it in there, in that box there. We got some talent in the back that'll be able to do that for me. Uh, Chris Burns on the TikTok, screaming at it, love it, keep can, watching it, can, uh, can. highlighting that on behalf of Peaks Recovery Centers. Uh, the Twitter, the Facebooks, all the other things. Until next time, everybody. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Shout out to, uh, I have a, a podcast. Yeah, oh, yeah, do, yeah, it. yeah do it. Yeah. Can I do it? Yeah, Absolutely. That's yours. Do the thing. Camera three? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mental Health with Steve Alardi and Hugh James. It, it, uh, so it's an, he's, Hugh is an Irish poet who is hilarious, unlike me. And it's, it's the, we're the perfect odd couple. He's young, I'm old. Uh, he's the poet, I'm the scientist. He's Irish, I'm American. I mean, it's, anyway, we tackle really, really deep, dark, tough mental health, mental illness issues with a kind of a light touch. And, and yet at the same time, really honoring uh, the experience of those that are suffering different forms of mental illness. So um, look for it if you're in a podcast. We're, we also are doing a YouTube thing. So um, yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, you All have me at Irish poet, so I'm yeah. good. No, yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank Love you. it, thank and you. thank you. And please watch yeah, it, absolutely. listen to it, get involved with it. This is a big topic, an excellent uh, professional and individual guiding us through those things as well too. So until next time, everybody. Thank you.